moved in with her mostly for reading in the bathtub. In honor of Labor Day, what on-screen housewife would you most like to be on the lam with? I'm Katie Rich, and I'm going with Divine and Pink Flamingos because she can wield a gun and would also get creative with food sources in a pinch. Hey, it's me, Dave with the Seven, Thelma and Louise, because I'm greedy, but they do give up easily. I am Matt Patches, and I'm going to go with Beverly D'Angelo as Ellen Griswold from Vacation because she'd be down to drive and DTF. <laughs> and I'm David Ehrlich, and I'm going to go with Jean Delman because at least you uh, know that dinner is going to be on the same time every night. Even if things end when you least expect them to. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine and and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's It's a podcast. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room for Tuesday, January 28th, 2014. Thank you for listening. Thank you for putting up with our crazy schedules while we were sun dancing and various other things. And thank you for continuing to leave your iTunes reviews. They make a huge difference to to us. We read them. They help us get new listeners. We love it. Thanks a lot. You are all being great. Sunday night were the Grammy Awards. Daft Punk won some stuff. Macklemore won some stuff. Some people got married, which was weird. I don't really. They got lucky, you might say. Well, they got lucky. I mean, they didn't really get lucky because they walked in there knowing they were going to get married. That was kind of a preordained thing. I was talking about Daft Punk. I know. I know. Um, (laughs) The Grammys are unlike most award ceremonies that I watch in that they give out about six awards over the course of the night and mostly are about performances. And not only is it like... And yet they have like a hundred categories. Oh, yeah. There's a ton of them. But they they rightly recognize that they can't give away more than a fraction of them on the air. So they just limit it to a handful and, you know, hand out the others in a ceremony beforehand. And, I mean, I kind of think everybody wins. I'm fine with that. Um, And it's not just that they, you know, like, here's your chance to see Taylor Swift at a piano, but they do these really interesting kinds of performances where they'll have Carol King team up with Sarah Bareilles or Kendrick Lamar team up with Imagine Dragons which was kind of a mixed bag or Stevie Wonder performing with Pharrell and Daft Punk and there's this element of it that gets people to watch it I mean the Grammys are the second most watched award ceremony behind the Oscars I kind of don't even understand why the Oscars are watched more because they are long and Half the times they're giving awards to people that nobody because the Oscars, of. like you know, it, it pains me to admit this, but there is at least the perception that the Oscars matter. I mean, Grammys, like people remember who won Oscars. That's true. Nobody, yeah. <laughs> like, well, that's because no even won. though we think Oscar season is bloated, it's only really a four month month stretch where we're talking about these movies. The the Grammys allow uh, it's like a year turnover. I mean, Taylor Swift's Red came out in what September 2012 or something. Yeah, yeah. and there's no period of actually talking about. It. Like I. I may just be outside of those circles, but as far as I can tell, the conversation about who's going to win what Grammys starts like three days before the award ceremony, and no one really cares. And it's even more disgraceful because the entire ceremony was filled with Oscar nominees presenting the awards. Oh, my God. It was was like pre-Oscars this year. I was like, (laughs) at least, you know, I guess Jared Leto is going to have to insult the entire transgender community from home tonight. And then like two hours later, who the fuck shows up on stage but Jared Leto? And I was like, son of a bitch. Jared Leto is here to single-handedly make you hate awards he is in a band to be fair 30 seconds of mars is legit okay 
I, I really hope you used figure quotes when calling 30 seconds to Mars a band. <laughs> Although, for anyone listening, uh, I, I cannot highly recommend enough going online and watching the music video for a 30 seconds to Mars song called um, From Yesterday. From Yesterday. Uh, you will you will know when you see it. David, it is why do you do indelible. these things to yourself? That's not, that's not the one where he's on... preaching to L.A. with all like Lindsay Lohan. No, in it's them, the right? one where oh. he and his bandmates are in like mythical Chinese kingdom, or whatever, and they like re- are received by the emperor. And there's like the forty-seven Ronin scenes. come out. It's like it's like Sucker Punch with a worse soundtrack. <laughs> it is uh, it is really special. It will make you hate Jared Leto forever um, if you don't already. Okay, definitely. <laughs> I cannot believe you guys all said you didn't have anything to say about the Grammys, and now we're off on a, like a ten-minute tangent about thirty. <laughs> well, apparently stars. we don't. This is yeah, the only. This is the first year I've ever the watched them. I've never watched them. I've never had a reason, and I was in well, the background. I was in the back of a room watching them last night. I guess my question for you, then leading up to the point I want to make about the idea of live television experiences and performance, is: Did you find it worth it to watch the Grammys? Did those live performances capture your attention in a way that made it worth it? I just felt like everyone was hate watching it. No one, everyone was like watching what stupidity was about to be paraded on stage. I, I felt like people were taking the live uh, sound of music more seriously than they were the Grammy performances. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Wait a minute. You differentiate between those two things? Uh, Wait, I do are you because saying one... the Grammys are the same as the live sound of music? No, I'm saying that, well, okay, vaguely in the realm that Patches is talking about them, about what people consciously or unconsciously quote-unquote hate watch, which I don't think really is a concept that exists. But, like, watching a live event to see, you know, things go wrong is part of the drop. Like draw of a live, but event. that's not why. That's like, why the, not why people Jamie watched Fox presenting <laughs> whatever award it was that he gave to Jay Z. Holy shit! Yeah, that, or <laughs> like the fact that like the MTV Movie Awards allow you know a oops event to happen every year. So but you're they, saying that you is know, hate has something watching. to write about. No, and I'm saying that that's it's a vague gray line when you're talking about live events that that's not like hate watching like you would hate watch smash. Okay, well people don't hate watch NASCAR but they watch it for the car crashes. And but I'm saying that people don't want didn't watch the sound of music live to to wait for Carrie Underwood to flub a line or something. It just wasn't going to happen. Wait, no, no, that's exactly why they watched it. They least, didn't watch well, it to see the I dis- most I disagree with that because of people sound of music. love sound of music and wanted to see how it compared to the old version. The Grammys offer nothing new, so you're just waiting for famous people to do something that's going to be gift in 24 hours, you know what I mean? And which is exactly what happened like, to how you just described the sound of music. What? Okay, so, like, it's, like, my mom texted me, like, Metallica is going to perform, which I don't even know if that even happened or what. They did. That it did happen, horrible. and it was pretty horrible. Okay, there we go. So my mom was all excited that Metallica is going to perform, but doesn't end up watching them. She just ends up watching part of the Grammys and, like, missed something because she went to go get snacks. But it's, like, that the, – the reason she was drawn in, much like, hey, Carrie Underwood's going to be in Sound of Music – but you're not watching it to see the actual thing that's supposed to be the focus. It's not like why you go to see a movie. Live events are different that way. They're not the primary motion of story delivery. They're spectacle delivery. Okay. So the spectacle li- delivery thing is kind of the reason I wanted to bring this up. Because I think that the spectacle of the Grammys really paid off in a way that the Oscars, on a regular basis, try and fail to do. Every time they try to do something with spectacle, be it interpretive dance or 
Mostly because the craft being respected during the show is not one of performance live. Yeah, I mean the Grammys have a huge the Grammys have a huge advantage in that they can do this live performance and it makes a really big difference. And I think the fact that the Grammys ratings are going up in recent years, like the second biggest this year was the second biggest year for Grammys ratings since nineteen ninety three, which sounds like a really dumb Well, this is actually the second most popular year for LL Cool J. I think that has uh, yeah. something to do with his it. hat on, is like a shark. He's on the rise. L Cool J is on the rise. <laughs> um, I mean, it sounds irrelevant until you think about what a huge difference there is in the way we watch television. Then in 1993, it isn't just the whole cable fewer channels thing, which was kind of happening then, but the DVRing thing. I mean, I think that the argument about shows like Scandal or even Breaking Bad in its later seasons being able to bring back the idea of live television being an event that you want to watch with a group of people. I think Grammys are capitalizing on that more than any other award shows. And I'm kind of encouraged by the idea of this model of having a way to make award shows matter through Twitter and not just because of who wins the awards because who gives a shit for the most part, but through having these performances that are actually worth watching. Like some of them were disastrous, but some of them were really good. And I'm glad that I watched them and experienced them at the same time as people. Like I feel like they're doing something right despite all of the many reasons that the Grammys are kind of terrible. But people anyway. aren't watching them. I mean, this is the case. What do you case, mean they're not watching them? This is the case that we run into when people are watching movies at home and that we've talked about before. Like the presence of social media, the live aspect of watching it together f- through the internet uh, doesn't actually allow people to watch them or respect them in any way. I mean, you're... Wait, you're ha- well, but that's that's what I was saying is that that's not... This is, shouldn't be a way that we primarily ingest story and that's why I don't think it is. Like Sound of Music is safe on all sorts of terms in the sense of people can sort of recognize bits and pieces of it if they don't know it completely. And much like, you know, sporting events have all these pauses built into just the way the game's played, unless it's hockey and that's not popular. So, oh. Wow. <laughs> oh, I'm Were sorry, Were you just guys. testing to see if David was paying attention? I know. We're talking about television ratings, right? Because I'm about to say something really craven, hey, uh, which I know has been... we're about television ratings about hockey on the, uh, the day after the highest-rated New York City hockey game in like decades anyway that doesn't seem like a very hard milestone to hit well you undercut my thing which is good (laughs) the um raising money for disaster relief specials are really amazing in the way that they sort of bring together so many elements that we would have labeled as variety shows and craven if they weren't in the context of disaster relief, mm-hmm. but everybody tunes in for them and then everybody buys the singles. And granted, a lot of that is for disaster relief, but a lot of that is the spectacle of the event. And things like American Idol sort of tried to plug back into that, but now we're sort of going in a different direction because everyone's trying to beat King Sports for the non sports people who are watching, you know, like one or two live events a week if they're heavy into something. Yeah. Maybe hockey. I just never would have expected that for television to swing in this pendulum back to live TV. Like, I know that advertisers and networks were going to be trying desperately to do it, but it seems to be happening organically in a way through Twitter that I think will keep us having better television for a while. Like, I recognize that the network model is dying, but it's going to stay alive a lot longer so long as stuff like this can actually succeed and actually be worth watching. Like I was saying, like, the spectacle... Sometimes it's ridiculous, like Sound of Music, but Sound of Music was also kind of fun to watch. But the problem is these live performances encourage sensationalism. I mean, you're not going to see... Encourage? Not, yes. They are sensationalism. Okay, yeah, they are I mean, sensationalism. Like they... you're, you're, you're not going to see Death of a Salesman live on 
on ABC. You know, you're not going to watch a play no, but... or you watch something that can be grounded or really dramatic or really interesting and compelling live. Like you could, I mean, it's possible, but you know, this is not going to be fathom events all of a sudden. Putting yeah, the, no, putting a Met Opera on TV. I mean, when, when honestly, since like the golden age of television, when was the case? I mean, I think that as long as uh, you you know, and I do think that the Grammys were a train wreck, and and I did feel my life sort of withering away as I watched them. Um, I think that as long as the spirit of and as long as television can be, you know, even more so than the internet, the major hub for nationwide communal live events, uh, it's good for the health of the medium as a whole. Yeah, and it's showmanship, and it's going to get better when the TV audience gets more savvy to what editing and CGI and reality, quote-unquote, TV actually is. And a live event has this, you know, sort of there might be a fiasco built into it, and that is the majority of the I time. can't wait until James Cameron directs the next Avatar live. Like, his, I know his, <laughs> uh, his on-set technology allows him to see the Avatar characters moving around in real time, so I feel like that's, that's on true. its way, right? Avatar live. Yeah. James Cameron's going to revolutionize television just the way he revolutionized movies. <laughs> I guess that was the end of the segment. I guess. I like your style. I was going to stick up in favor of Breaking Bad being Death of a Salesman like live television watching, but it's. But it's not. That's not live. That's I know, not, but, but, you're, it, but that's all you're talking watch about. It live. But people watch it live, which is a huge difference because most shows people don't. But that's different I than think, what you're yeah. saying. I know it There's is, a- and, and that's why I didn't bring it up. But I think that saying that you're not going to get that, like the the return of live TV viewing, communal TV viewing, is not going to bring out. The well, like I feel, is- correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like a decade ago, I guess it would be more than a decade ago, they did like a live Twelve Angry Men, or they did a play. Um, I just couldn't fathom that today. There's nothing. They would totally like. Well, they would I, totally do on Golden Pond with Meryl Streep and right. Jack Nicholson. Well, no, they, they did totally on Golden would. Pond with uh, Julie yeah, Andrews, right? I, uh, oh, wait, who was in that li- that live on Golden I remember Pond, like, it. 15, almost 20 years ago. Oh, God, but see, the, that putting the ago? stars in it is still spectacle. Julie that, Andrews I, and Christopher wrong. Plummer, nicely done. That's that's not correct. You Just putting stars in something doesn't make something spectacle. Because I mean, that's what plays and movies do. Because they're thinking, like, Julie Andrews can really add this nuance to that. I, I think there's a different conversation to be had about if you can hold that many people in actual dramatic fiction for that period of time. I'm not sure it's possible. Like, theater's different because it's in a room and there's something physical and believable about that illusion. But in terms of, like, live television, if it's, you know, an actual fiction being portrayed, I'm not sure you could hold, like, a four-quadrant audience, like a Super Bowl audience with, like, any sort of thing where you're supposed to have dramatic arc in it. Right, you can't. So all of these live shows are going to have to get bigger, 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 and crazier. Well, but they're not even going for you to understand the story or feel the character arcs. They're going for the the spectacle thing, and then you're sort of driven away by the pleasantness of it. It's like my my mom didn't need to see Metallica play live to be thrilled by the idea that Metallica was playing at the Grammys. Your mom did need to see Metallica, and she mourns I mean, the fact maybe. that she hasn't. Oh my god, Metallica were so awful. They were just they were screaming. Awful. Maybe I don't remember awful. Metallica very well. Was it has it always yeah, been? Yeah, you that? do. <laughs> They're terrible. <laughs> well, Maybe that was the end of the segment. Metallica. Give me fuel, give me fire, give me that which I desire.
so I'm still alive somehow, having uh, returned from Sundance a few days ago and attempted to work the entire time. So I'm not sleeping until February, but thank God I still remember what I saw in the second half of the festival. If you recall, last week I spoke with our friend Jordan Hoffman while we were actually in Park City, Utah, experiencing Sundance. And now I'm back with a foggy recollection of the second half of the festival. And the first thing I have to mention is Kamiko the Treasure Hunter, a film by the Zellner Brothers, because David is losing his shit over this movie david it's all my shit is gone i cannot find it anywhere all the shit is gone <laughs> thank god it'll uh, cleanse you kamiko the treasure hunter poster quote yeah david why do you love this movie so much in 20 seconds what 20 seconds why don't i love this movie so much i mean essentially what it is is it's a uh, it's a true story in the ultimate finger quotes about as true as fargo was uh, about a japanese girl played by rinko kikuchi in one of the best performances i can re- remember seeing in, in the past few years um uh, who finds a vhs copy of fargo that is beaten and warped to hell on the beach of japan somewhere and becomes obsessed with the money that in fargo Steve Buscemi's character buries under the snow in uh, Brainerd, Minnesota in the film, and uh, she essentially flames out of her life and goes to Minnesota to try and track it down on a uh, sort of a a vision quest that feels uh, like a combination of uh, uh, Don't Look Now and a Lars von Trier film, but with the Coen brothers' sort of mordantly funny, very, very funny sensibility. It's and you, you adored I it. I think so I talked to the Zellners about it, and they described it as – well, they talked to Rinko about Charlie Chaplin and the Dardan brothers. And that's – now that I look the film through that lens, it's pretty accurate. Yeah. Um, I, I adored the film too. Maybe I'm a little cooler than David who is going to be talking about this film and trying to make it into a masterpiece for the next however oh, months. So. Keep, oh, no, keep work, expectations my, down. My work here is done. I, uh, <laughs> I my fourteen hundred word review of it is on film.com. And I actually don't believe that the word masterpiece appears once. Although well, that's, there may have, uh, that's good. You're uh, dancing around it. It's a stunning film. Uh, it has amazing music from the Octopus it, Project, it, it, which it actually is, yeah. won an award for their music at Sundance. And when that comes around, uh, high, highly recommend it. I actually, it's executive produced by Alexander Payne and Jim Taylor now. Um, so that's a vote of confidence. Plus David's. Yeah, the Alexander Payne influence I think is definitely felt. Um, yeah, if my if my recommendation does anything for you, but uh, it's it's really it's really a beautiful film. If uh, rather than eat up time in the segment when there are other Sundance movies to talk about, go on film.com, read the first few paragraphs of my <laughs> review. If those don't sell you, there's no hope. Shameless plug. <laughs> Just to rattle off a few more things that I really enjoyed while I was at Sundance, the second half. Uh, a movie that I believe IFC Midnight has picked up, so you will see it soon, called The Baba Duke from Australian director Jennifer Kent. Uh, I, I adore can, this can movie. Can you say it more than three times? The Baba Duke. Uh, I've been saying The Baba Duke since coming back from Sundance. I can't stop saying it. And you're it. still alive? And I see, yes, exactly. It doesn't know. It's not like Beetlejuice. Um, the Babadook is actually a boogeyman that is, has kind of manifested from the anxiety uh, of, of, a, of a mother, a widowed mother who's trying to take care of her misbehaving son. Uh, and as you know, we have talked on this podcast a lot about scary movies and the annoyance of jump scares, the illegitimacy of, of jump scares. And here's a movie that really births terrifying moments from real drama and i, I was it was shocking not jump scares and it's not a jump scare movie it is definitely really like a, just an atmospheric terrifying i mean it, it's anxiety inducing you know jennifer kent uh i spoke to her as well and she you know she grew up as an actress 
really wanted to make films, hates school, did not want to go to film school. So what did she do? She does what we all would do. Uh, she emailed Lars von Trier and asked for a job <laughs> on Dogville. And as she describes it, she had a shit-kicking job or, uh, on, on Dogville and soaked it all in. And now she's made The Babadook. So I would highly recommend um, it. Is the movie absent of jump scares or are there – I think a few of them. I really don't remember a moment that's like screechy violins or slamming door. Is, it's really a, it's a snowballing effect throughout the entire film. That that is music to my ears because I was reading so many raves about this movie from Sundance, which sounded like this wonderful new horror film. And so often, as has been the case over the past few years, you see one of those movies and it is just uh, maybe a slightly better orchestrated than usual, uh, you know, assembly of, of jump scares, and it drives me nuts. It, I can't stand it, and yeah. I am now so much more excited for the Baba Duke. Baba Duke played in Midnight, but this is not VHS two. You know, this is not that type of movie. Definitely check it out. Um, what else did I see? I saw a Lars von Trier film. I saw Nymphomaniac Part 1. You'll all see it very soon, and it is not what I was expecting at all. It's hilarious. It's raunchy, but in in a way, it's it's kind of tame. There's a lot of sex, God. but it's certainly not uh, – it, it's not racy sex. It's, it's a very strange movie, and, and I, really, I only saw half of it, and it certainly needs Part 2. So I would almost recommend waiting until Part 2 is out there and see them both somehow. Um, and, and just to rattle off a few things, I really enjoyed Joe Swanberg's Happy Christmas, which is a small little movie where nothing happens, and that's quite enjoyable in the hands of Swanberg, like Swanberg and movie. Anna Kendrick and, uh, and the rest of the crew. Um, Listen Up Philip uh, from Alex Ross Perry is tremendous. Uh, it is a caustic uh, film about loneliness and ego and a lot of people are going to hate it because these are mean-spirited characters, and not intentionally, but I think it comes from a very emotional place for Perry, and it's a beautiful film shot on 60mm, and, and, and it's stunning. Um, and The Raid 2... Alex Ross Perry, the platypus? Oh, yes. Sorry, I had to. <laughs> uh, if you're excited for The Raid 2, good luck. I mean, Raid... The raid was not. <laughs> the raid was not for me, uh, and the raid two is certainly not for me. It's two and a half hours long. Did you see the raid two? I did, because I oh, got I it right. Um, and it's it's not a good film. But it's the greatest, insanest, craziest movie ever made. Patches. I know. Um, and the last thirty minutes are the last thirty minutes are crazy. The first two hours are uh, excruciatingly painful. And one more thing I wanted to throw out there: um, I've seen a lot of people rave for the Better Angels, which was uh, directed by the editor of uh, Terrence Malick's many films and it is a complete bore it is an awful mill movie about abraham lincoln's young years and it's 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 almost like not another terrence malick movie um which oh my is disappointing God. um so i would avoid that uh, now, you know not but, not to throw any shade on some good mutual friends of ours but there are certain people who can be relied on slurping down that sort of thing it's a beautiful it's a beautiful and looking I, film it's a beautiful I looking was, film with nothing to really, say I was really looking for a few positive notices from not those people. <laughs> I know. And I know. Unfortunately, I didn't um, see it, but I, I'm going to go see that in Berlin, so I'm hoping for a better experience. I, it has defenders. Uh, I so am positive it? on Greg Rocky's uh, White Bird in a Blizzard, starring Shailene Woodley, um, which is a, a sex-driven film that I, I really enjoyed with an amazing mother-daughter relationship. Many people hated it uh, because it has this mystery plot that is very silly, but I really like Shailene in this film. And um, the one last thing I wanted to say, because uh, David didn't get enough, didn't hear about this film at all, apparently, is The Girl from Nagasaki, this um, adaptation yeah. of Madame Butterfly that played in a category called New Frontiers at uh, Sundance, which is kind of the more experimental stuff. It has a lot of art installations. So this film is 3D, 
um, operatic narrative. Again, it's based on Madame Butterfly, but it is um, part interpretive dance. It's part opera. It's 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 extravagant. I mean, the costumes and the, the dances. I mean, it reminds me of uh, how is Hammer Girl in it? Just cut to the chase. <laughs> All of them are are incredible. It's a really dynamic movie. It just struck me in the perfect way. I mean, Pina is probably the closest thing closest comparison point to it and i'm sure it'll come out um it's a labor of love from all the people involved it was directed by this fashion photographer whose name escapes me um but it's like nothing else and so i would highly recommend it wait katie you had a question oh make a very bold, bold prediction if there's gonna be a one sundance movie that matters in a year what's it gonna be uh well i am high on whiplash despite its universal praise which i know might make people scared um I don't know. I guess I'm, Kumiko is up there. Boyhood is going – I mean, Boyhood is hard to call a movie. I mentioned this before. I just feel like it's an event. It's something we're all going to enjoy, and it's going to speak to all of us in a different way, and I can't wait to see it again with like a 1,000 people. That's what so I So in other words, it's, it's going to matter. It's going to matter very much. Throughout the next year. <laughs> There's a lot of TV to talk about right now. As usual, it seems like HBO has a way of monopolizing Sunday nights, even when you don't, even when Game of Thrones isn't on TV. Um, the things that have our interest right now, at least the new thing that has our interest right now, is True Detective, which three of us have watched to some degree. Uh, I'm not caught up on patches, is not caught up on, so we don't want to get into too much detail about it as the plot of the show. But among the many interesting things about it, including uh, I think what David is calling Matthew McConaughey's best thing ever and better than Jared I mean, Leto. it's just like it's his performance in True Blood, in True Blood, fuck True Blood, in, in uh, True Detective <laughs> is is just insanely great. I mean, like it is it is amazing. I mean, all everything he's been doing over the past few years is strong, but this is just like unbelievable. Having watched you know, two episodes get... of it, I feel like it's because of the movie, and I've read some interviews with the creator of the show who talks about it's more like theater for him and he can let his characters monologue and i guess we haven't seen or at least personally i haven't seen mcconaughey give a monologue before a film doesn't afford that for him and he's just well, amazing gosh you've I seen would, more of it than i have i did not realize uh, you've seen this much uh-huh. well I've i would mean besides episode. just the monologue point it's interesting to see him play two versions of the character with so much time in between it because usually when you get Matthew McConaughey in a movie that you enjoy him in, he's locked in, you know, one character in one time point. Or yeah, for me, anyway. So it's, it, it helped me contextualize. Well, in Failure to Launch. It's kind of like you're seeing him in Dallas Buyers Club back to back with Wolf of Wall Street, but within the same show, like that much of a transition. And he usually, he just lives in in these characters so much. I mean, it's like you, it's just like it's such a a physical performance, and he really. Gets it, and it, it, it could, especially in the contemporary bits, it could really easily, you could see how it could veer into caricature, but he keeps it really grounded, and there's so much portent in the dialogue. I mean, it's like, you know, it's a little over the top, but he, he makes it work, and he and Woody Harrelson are a pretty phenomenal team, slash, and TV reunion. Amazing. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> I, uh, I mean, 
for those that don't know, True Detective is a HBO detective series where Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson are partners, and there's a mystery in like the mid-90s, and there are also segments that take place in 2012. Thanks, Dave. You're welcome. Yeah, um, because the... Uh... I mean, yeah, just like, like a little bit more story, maybe. I don't know. Maybe just because I want to talk about it. It's interesting. But, uh, but yeah, there was a murder in the 90s. There was like a serial killer, really twisted. He had prostitutes that he tied by trees naked with antlers and weird tattoos on their backs. And, uh, and the movie, it feels like the, like the series is, is pinching into something in the middle, although that's not necessarily what it's doing. But essentially, in the contemporary day, they've rounded these two guys up because even though they got the killer at some point that we haven't seen yet – Somebody is out there in present time committing murders that are identical. It's interesting because um, they've pitched, you know, these two characters as having these eight episodes of True Detective. And then they're going to be either replaced or we're going to move on to a different sort of focus. So you really get the idea that this is the sort of thing that the luxury of a TV show that's on more of like a British model that knows it's ending when it starts and is able to sort of eat at it from both ends and sort of uh, structure its reveals and whatnot. Yeah, I hear that Matthew McConaughey is going to explode at the end of the season and turn into David Tennant. Yeah. yeah. That's well, how I mean, all British television <laughs> that's ends. That's all British television, right? That's a bad that's example the model. because that's the – as a show in its fiftieth anniversary, that's a that's a that's an anomalous example. Shut up! Or you're gonna blow you up into the, David Tennant. You're trying to get the Doctor Who trolls. I'm trying to get us? to what I think the focus of the segment is. Yeah, you guys do keep. Try, I keep trying to guide the segment, and you guys just running off. So yes, we Dave, do have a fear of what, blowing up into David Tennant. That's where we're going. <laughs> tell us what we're talking about, Dave. Well, first of all, David Tennant was like two doctors ago. Jesus, patch. I'm blowing up into Matt Smith right now. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Keep keep going. Uh, that guy from In the Loop. <laughs> okay, okay. Good. Now you're you're all caught up. Um, uh, I'm sorry, Katie. I forgot the question. So, Dave. Yes. Why do we want to talk about True Detective in a broader sense? What is interesting about this show, other than what is actually interesting about watching the show? Why is it interesting for television and the way we watch it? Well, it's interesting to me because it's um, prestige television, HBO, which you know doesn't really care about ratings and doesn't really cancel shows if it doesn't have to. Stepping into the anthology format, which FX has had some success with, with American Horror Story, which is currently enjoying its most viewed season, if not necessarily its uh, storytellingly best season. But it was definitely the season with Stevie Nicks in it. But in case uh, anthology storytelling, in case anybody really has no idea what I'm talking about, is basically different storylines every episode or every season. But a group, an anthology, if you will, of smaller stories. Um, And now with True Detective, it seems like they were able to lure to movie actors in the case of Matthew McConaughey who's had a great year in film this year bringing him into this TV series with Woody Harrelson and allowing them to sort of do these deep character studies uh, over eight episodes because there's no chance that they're going to be looped into you know 10 years of doing this because suddenly they have a popular TV show and no chance they'll get canceled halfway through correct well I mean for the American Horror Story that's a little bit different where it might work to a situation where you don't want to cancel it because you know you could come up with something else and the stars will come back and people aren't there for the plot anyway with HBO who doesn't really cancel anything unless the creator is ready to give it up with a few very notable exceptions but for the most part hello ladies which i enjoyed quite a bit and which is or enlightened i mean okay 
point being is that with a subscriber base, you're not really a slave to any sort of ratings. So as long as your Game of Thrones is chugging along, you can sort of push the narrative boundaries of what we consider television. And so it looks like what they're trying to do is sort of rope in a whole bunch of very traditional uh, movie talent with like sort of uh, noirish mysteries in this true detective series so that people could come in and bite off huge chunks of character like Matthew McConaughey has, but oh no, that they, you know, only get to go in and do these eight episodes and they have to get out and they won't get mired into television to the point where they're giving up more lucrative opportunities in film, regardless of the quality of those films. The thing that's uh, interesting on top of McConaughey and Harrelson and, you know, the way that's working. And, and Kerry Fukunaga is not the creator of True Detective. That is a guy named Nick Pelagio. No, yeah, that's the guy who was the... married to Nora Ephron. No, I think, I mean, you're close. No. It's like Palazzo or something yeah, like that. Yeah, Pelagio is definitely the guy who was married to Nora Ephron. The guy um, who wrote the, he writes the series. Yeah, uh, but Kerry Fukunaga, who directed Jane Eyre and Sinome before that, uh, directed all of the To be fair, Kerry is now going by Kerry Joji. Fukunaga oh. in the credits of True. Pardon me, Carrie Joji yeah. Fukunaga. I don't know why. Um, anyway, <laughs> a guy who had really established, you know, he he hadn't really had any huge hits, but he definitely established himself as a name in independent film, and then he came in and directed these episodes, which is something similar to what Lena Dunham did, although she, I mean, she has a different role in Girls, but, you know, she had this one successful independent film and then moved to television, and then we saw Jane Campion do uh, Top of the Lake after a very different and much longer career in independent film. And I kind of see it as two sides. As, like, there's a good and a bad side to it in that these people who otherwise might have trouble getting these independent films funded can move to television and do really interesting work. But I wonder if these opportunities aren't being handed to people who are naturally of television. Like you think about Joss Whedon who cut his teeth in TV for years and years and really spoke the language of television at the time before he had his own show and then moved into film. Like. I'm really glad to see people like Carrie Fuku Joji Fukunaga <laughs> doing television like this, but I wonder, like, is that blurring of lines going to kind of shut out voices who can't get their independent film finance to get people to notice them to make something like this? Well, I, I want to follow what you're saying, but I'm struggling. How, <laughs> how, how would that how would that shut people? Well, I think what she because you can't get your start in television, you have to get your start in film and oh, then I get into a great see. TV well, series. Well, you know, you're not going to get your start. You were never going to get your start uh, on anything this high profile with this sort of budget and pedigree. I think that the opportunity uh, still exists to, uh, in the same way that, um, that, fuck, why is his name escaping me? Roger Corman would uh, give so many later, if filmmakers who later became you know, legends, uh, their start on these cheapo films that they shoot in two or three days, you can still get paid $30,000 to, if you're an up-and-coming director, to go out and do an episode of Law and & Order and make $22,000 or whatever it is every time they, they re-air it. Um, and you're making a good living and you're getting your start and all you have to do is know your craft. You know, you put the camera this way because you're going to do all the shots on that side of the courtroom right now and uh, there's not much artistry to it. And that's how you get your start. So those opportunities are still available. I just think that uh, it, it works the other way where that when you have very talented, developed filmmakers uh, who see the opportunity to expand their canvas and tell a longer form story like this, it, it provides them a platform, whereas previously they would not have been able to do it. Although Nicole Holof Center will tell you that she loves directing television. Her favorite thing in the world well, is Nicole directing, directing well, Parks yeah, and Rec. She's a, she, she loves that kind of yeah. – 
writing. I think she just likes to be able to to not have to labor over a script like that and make it this whole process and just go and like be around that rhythm and flow and and. Well, that's know, certainly why Frank Darabont doing, has like, really retreated to television. I mean, I think his experience directing well, the Frank Shield Dar- changed him forever. But uh, Nicole yeah, Hollisner I mean, is doing something really to... different from Frank Darabont. Nicole, Nicole Hollisner is like popping in for an episode or two on shows and then moving on to make her own movies. Like Frank Darabont yeah, is like a creative like, force behind these shows. A, if you are a person who likes – you know, a filmmaker who likes making film, it can I can imagine be incredibly frustrating to just be gestating film for years and years at a time, especially when those films are 90-minute – romantic dramas you still have to piece together such a sizable budget and perfect schedule alignment to make work so when they can slot you in and say you know as little stress as possible you're going to go in and be responsible for this thing um i mean i think someone like nicole hall center is like you know happy to do it well i mean i also think that we're i mean maybe i just like my point better than this point but i, I mean i think that we're still talking about a finite grouping of episodes because it's not like David Fincher did the first two House of Cards, but he was happy just setting the visual styles for that right. series. It's like Andrew than... Haig on uh, Looking, which everyone – Andrew Haig directed Weekend, which was sort of a landmark uh, LGBT film from a few years back. And it's in the Criterion Collection. It's like a, you know, a huge success. And now he directed – I think in the same way that David Fincher sort of like got uh, House of Cards up to speed and then like let it go. He did that with oh, Looking, but, but everybody hates I Looking. I thought Andrew so. Haig was more involved in Looking than that. My impression – I mean I'm not going to you know, go to the, the mat with this. My impression is that he directed the first few episodes and sort of, or maybe just the first one set the tone and then stepped away. But I do know okay. that, that everyone I talk to um, is just not, not on board with that show. So. Oh, I'm enjoying it. I mean in terms of the medium of storytelling or the medium of television being more of a storyteller's medium than I guess directing would be in terms of people think about you know the – showrunner who's more involved with the scripts than actually you know being the guy behind the camera and whatnot i think it's mostly because you can't have these people come in and dedicate the amount of time it takes to direct something to you know a unforeseen ending to a story or whatnot because they're trained to make these certain decisions so when you have something encapsulated like true detective or when you're like Martin Scorsese on Boardwalk Empire and all they're hiring you to do is come up with a visual style that can be used for a whole bunch of situations. That series is just barely eking out of Martin Scorsese's style and it's four you know, seasons in because that's how long it takes to break the directorial mold if they have like some sort of Bible. So I would see why it would be easier if you knew where the beginning, the middle of the story and the end where the story was was to sign on to direct all these episodes. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think the true detective model is probably the strongest way to have a filmmaker really put their stamp on something and have it be their product. Like, you yeah, do I believe that's a, a mini series, <laughs> as some people might call it. Yeah, there's, it? No, yeah. there's no season two for true detective with this creative team. Right. Yeah, uh, well, Soderbergh's doing the same thing right now. He's directing the with Nick, the Nick for right, Cinemax, yeah. and he's directing all the episodes with Clive Owen and transforming our precious uh, New York shot, into uh, the he, 1900s with <laughs> Dust yeah, Street. Yeah, he shot 73 days or something. It's like crazy, you know, it's like almost a blockbuster film, but I'm sure with Soderbergh's efficiency, it's probably right. 10 hours long. I'm, I'm intrigued. Um, <laughs> I'm intrigued by the point that you made. Katie, I mean, I don't know where you're going with this necessarily, but like hearing about Joss Whedon 
you know, cutting his teeth as a, as a showrunner and transforming himself into a director of his own pilots and key episodes. And then now he has a place in the big screen world. It's almost as if uh, our, our big screen movies at this point are demanding television style direction, point the camera and shoot, get it in the can and put it up there for mass audiences huh. to enjoy. And now well, kind really of- the only, uh... the only place for someone like Kerry Fukunaga is, is HBO. Um, I mean, we've obviously been veering in this direction for a long time. We've even talked about it here with uh, top of the lake, with Jane Campion and that sort of thing. But really, I mean, is the aesthetic of, of film as, as a big screen medium changing and the one uh, is the small screen now more cinematic. I mean, I don't know if it's more cinematic. I think I go back to Dave's argument about storytelling. Like, Joss Whedon lives and breathes story, which is what he's, uh, you know, what he got from television. And then he was able to bring that into this giant spectacle-driven but I even think, cinema. Which I even think of, the right? like, the prestige films that we've seen this fall. I mean, they don't really speak to me as visually as maybe smaller movies or something like true detective i mean i think true detective yeah, is but, full of atmosphere and full of and the cinematography is quite uh enthralling and i don't get that from a lot well, of the the prestige films that should be kind of delivering on this angle right i can't speak to the prestige films but certainly with uh you know the finances being what they are in independent filmmaking when you have people scratching together you know 10 or 20 thousand dollar budgets to shoot on digital cameras uh we've seen naturally with the rise of these so-called mumblecore movement and whatnot a not a de-emphasis on visuals but simply just like a different approach to them that looks a little bit more rough hewn and organic but i think that now we're seeing some natural resistance to that from filmmakers who were maybe previously associated with something like that what you see kumiko the treasure hunter which is uh you know a film by the zelda well, brothers who did kid thing and it is the most you know brilliantly and beautifully composed the swanberg uh, film that i mentioned happy christmas shot on film oh yeah all, hmm. all these filmmakers then, you know, all these have... digital these guys who hone their skills on digital on like crappy digital are going film now for some really small oh, and then you also have uh you know I don't know what the reason for it is, but you may, maybe you have this resurgence of cinephile filmmakers as well. Someone like Alex Ross Perry, who will, you know, probably only shoot under digital at gunpoint. Now, um, where's his and, HBO show? He set one up. He has an HBO uh, show. And I, I think it's not, in the can. It, it, uh, it's not. It's not. It's happening. never going to see the light of day. Jesus. I, I do not believe so. It was it was a thing for the web, actually. Um, and it is uh, last I heard about nine months ago or something like right. that. They pulled the plug so but he's uh he's got his own thing going on so he's doing fine i mean sometimes i think that the transition between television and film and back and forth is you know somebody advancing up their career but i mean uh i don't think that it's necessarily that one is better than the other if you think about them as two different ways of storytelling like if joss whedon wasn't called up to direct a blander action film as much as he was called up to make the central point in a movie that had to include storylines of four other movies people might not have seen. Like, maybe that's the sort of guy that you want a TV storytelling mind right. on and not necessarily, you know, the Michael Bay Transformers 3, <laughs> let's make things blow up and not He has a TV show anyway. Mind. He has black sales. Now. Isn't that a right. Michael Bay show? Yeah. Oh, sure. Uh, probably. You know, it's interesting. I think it is that you know we've this discussion is ongoing. Obviously, about you know is TV 
the new film is film out the door or something. It's just interesting to me that not only are these kind of more interesting stories, more cinematic stories being told on the small screen, but that the people who run networks, who run HBO and Cinemax and, and AMC want these shows. They want to tell these stories. There's something that they see uh, uh, lucrative potential in in telling gritty, mature stories, and somehow the the movie world doesn't. That's what I'm more. Well, because I mean, I think that you know, it's There's more not, on the line with uh, the movie, I guess, when you're spending eighty million dollars on. A, a big well, and it promotes it promotes continued investment. These are things that are coming into your home at a time of your choosing that you get to choose to spend time on instead of you having to go out, pay additional money, deal with additional bullshit to see something that's supposed to wow you. This is more like you could happen across this while flipping from Antiques Roadshow and be blown away by the drama of something. And that's just a much more... Also, I think that it's possible that we're getting kind of suckered in to, you know, just having the familiarity of characters week to week. After a certain amount of time, you could really screw with those characters and bring all four quadrants somewhere. A la your boneses and castles, which I don't even know what they're about <laughs> the anymore. The four quadrants. Yeah. but Dave always I, speaks in studio terms, even when it's on television. I'm just saying, some people love bones, but can't tell me one distinctive thing about any of the characters that I David didn't Boyanis know. David Boreanaz loves hockey. That I didn't know about in the first season. Is what I'm saying is that we're being, you know, sort of held hostage by our connections that we make to these characters. But that's fine. Art, art isn't supposed to think about that for us, especially in the mass audience range, I, I guess. That was a this is a weird thing to say, wasn't it? <laughs> You're just picking on Bones for no reason. Why not pick on Bones? Bring back Murder, She Wrote. Why did the Murder, She Wrote reboot die? That does it for today's Fighting in the War Room. We'll be back on Friday baking pies and reviewing Labor Day, which was nominated for a Golden Globe a month ago and is only now coming No, it wasn't. Okay. Nominated? Oh, no, just, it wasn't nominated? Or, no, it wasn't. No, you're just lying. I know. The Golden Globes I made up entirely just to drive you crazy. Um, anyway, uh, thank you for listening. In the meantime, tell the people who you are. I am Matt Patches. Uh, I write on the internet. I put all my work at mattpatches.com. I'm on Twitter at Mr. Patches. And uh, remember, we have a new website. I guess it's still new, right? Well, it's 2014, so it's new. Uh, it's called fightinginthewarroom.com. Uh, you can go there every week. We post the reviews. There's places to comment, leave feedback, ways to share it socially. And uh, we encourage you to um, talk to us there. I'm David Ehrlich. I'm the editor of Film.com. You can find me on Twitter at David Ehrlich and at Film, D-O-T-C-O-M. And you can find all of us on Facebook at Fighting in the War Room. Are you the junior editor at Film.com? I, I, I am the editor of Film.com. You know me. I'm the guy. Good to know. Uh, I'm uh, Dave Gonzalez. I spelled that first part D-A-7-E, which is also my Twitter handle, you can find me writing about superhero movie news at latino-interview.com. You can also call this show and leave us a voicemail. And if we like the question that you pose or the comment that you make, we will use it on the show. People should really do that. Been, I love when I shouldn't have encouraged comments. I love voicemails so much. Uh, yeah, we do yeah. like voicemails, but, you know, 
I, I don't know. I feel there's a line we can also cross. Maybe we should find that line at 914-410-6450. And I am Katie Rich. You can find me on Twitter at Katie Rich or at Vanity Fairs Hollywood, which features some coverage from Matt Patches right now. It's very exciting. Uh, you can also find the show on Twitter at FITWR, where you can answer this week's lightning round question, which is... In honor of Labor Day, what on-screen housewife would you most like to be on the lam with? Thank you for listening, and we'll be back talking to you on Friday. And if he stays awake for him in the morning, I'm a thousand pieces of life. If he stays and I'll wait for him in the morning, I'm a thousand pieces of life. If he stays, then I'll wait for him in the morning. I'm a thousand pieces of light.